0: Welcome to Organized Crime and Punishment, the best spot in town to hang out and talk about history and crime, with your hosts, Steve and Mustache Chris. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states.
1: Steve here, Mustache, Chris, and I are... Back at it with another installment of Five Families in Five Episodes. Just to set the stage, these episodes are meant to lay some of the groundwork and provide us with a reference to the five most powerful mafia families in New York City and in the American Mafia. These overview episodes of the pivotal families that form the golden age of the Italian-American Mafia in the United States will lead us in so many different directions. In future episodes, we'll dig into the stories of all of these families and mafia organizations all around the United States, and even into Canada. We will also dig into the dark distance past of the pre-five family era. In the five families, we get an important anchor point for any study of the American mob before or after. We highly encourage you to revisit these episodes and tell your friends about them so they can become friends of ours. Now, today we have the Genovese family or the Genovese family. I'm sure we'll switch around how we say that for you. Um, Mustache, why don't you start us right at the beginning? What is sort of the prehistory and early history the genovese family
2: yeah so like the genovese family can like literally trace its origins back to america the american mafia in new york really its roots are in the, the morello gang, which was one of the first major uh, uh mafias and uh i would say actually it was probably the first mafia in new york really yeah and there was another guy that the t- uh, there was a, a guy at the time uh Ignazio the wolf loophole, he was the boss of uh Little Italy and he married one of Morello who was the in charge of the Morello gang. He married one of his uh half sisters and they kind of united these two gangs together to kind of create like the I don't know the super mafia in New York at the time, right? He was in charge of uh, Little Little Italy. And uh, they ran, like, a giant counterfeiting like uh, scheme. I think they were printing off, like, $5 bills, like, fake $5 bills, and they were working with the mafioso, like, back in the homeland in Sicily. And eventually they, they got caught. Uh, we're going to probably end up talking about this detective he... Uh, down the road, Joe, uh, Joseph Petrozino. He's kind of like a Sherlock Holmes around this time. I, I recently just finished a book about him. He's a fascinating guy. And, uh, he was like one of the first, uh, police officers to really kind of uh, identify the mafia at the time. It was kind of, it was referred to as like the Black Hand organization organized like criminality in New York. He was one of the guys that really led, uh, like a crusade against it. He ended up dying in Sicily, but, he did, um, get these guy these two guys rung up on, uh, like counterfeiting charges and they ended up getting, uh, I think it was sentenced
1: to 25 years in prison. I think they got deported later on and the, that starts into the next big phase of the mafia with joe the boss Mazaria and he forms his uh own gang using this as a the morello gang as a kind of a nucleus
2: we're gonna get into it like kind of like the pre-pre history it's 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 really complicated there's like a there's like a war called the malafia and Komoro war and like, so, you know, for the purposes of this show, um, uh, now it's at the end of the mafia, the Sicilian mafia wins the war. Most of the Camorra who were from, uh, Neapolitan, um, from Naples, uh, Neapolitans, um, either they were killed or they were sent to prison or they ended up joining the, uh, Sicilian mafia. And so Joe Mazzaria, who's also known as Joe the Boss, uh, ends up becoming, uh, basically running the the entire organized crime in new york city you know and at one point it's just crazy to think like all the people that were like um working under him at one point uh, if anybody's like familiar with just you know basic mafia history like lucky luciano frank costello vito genovese albert anastasia meyer lansky even though he wasn't italian he was jewish you know bugsy siegel These were all guys that were working underneath Um, Joe Masseria. I would say it's like this is the all-star mafia crew in the history of the mafia. Really, all these guys ended up founding families or uh, having – you know, long eventful careers in the mafia.
1: Joe, the boss, Maseria gets into a big war, which we'll get into with, uh, Salvatore Maranzano. And what kind of comes out of that whole thing?
2: Salvatore Maranzano basically leads a, yeah, leads to war against like, uh, Joe, the boss, Joe, the boss ends up, uh, getting killed. He ends up getting, he was betrayed by his own underlings, uh, lucky Luciano and, uh Meyer Lansky and Butsy Siegel and those guys and um yeah and then Marizano takes over for a little bit and Lucky Luciano thought you know we'll get Marizano in there and he'll be like a little less uh fascistic or I don't know the term you want to use iron-fisted that uh a little less iron-fisted than say Joe the boss was but Lucky immediately doesn't like what marizano is doing he starts using the title uh boss of all bosses and does away with them too he actually sets up this little scheme where uh irs agents are going to sneak into marizano's office and he got he actually got uh meyer lansky and butsy siegel to like recruit uh some jewish hoods from around the area so marizano wouldn't really know who these guys are because it's not like Maranzano was hanging out with uh, many jews at the time i don't even know if he spoke english to be honest with you <laughs> um so they sneak in and they kill him and that leaves basically lucky and in charge in new york and he sets up the commission system that's uh famous now in chicago actually he was done at a meeting in chicago and al capone was there and basically anybody that was in-
1: important really it's pretty amazing that all this stuff happens. It happens so quickly. And the mafias before this, it's these different gangs of, um, Camoras and La Cosa Nostra and all these mafia and all the different Italian gangs and they're just kind of running their own little things some are bigger some are smaller you have Jewish gangs in there and then all, this whole thing starts developing and developing and just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and then you have i mean really I don't know if Lucky Luciano was necessarily brilliant, or but between him and Meyer Lansky, the, the two of them together, that power team, really absolutely recreated organized crime in the U.S.
2: Yeah, I would say. That. I would say. I would say. In terms of organized criminality, I'd say yeah. Lucky was a visionary in a lot of ways. Where there's kind of like a misunderstanding with like Maranzano, I find where. People think like Marizano was just trying to become like the boss of bosses, like the king of kings, but he actually did set up like the five family system and something kind of like the commission where, but like he was going to be like, the he- charge of it. Like uh, the best way I can kind of describe, like I would describe it sort of kind of like how a medieval kingdom would run where yes, the king was at was on the top and kind of what he said was final word, but he couldn't really. He couldn't just go around like decreeing things he like, had to come with some he had to have like support of like the, the dukes and the local bishops and you know or, like the system that uh, lucky ends up setting up is the best way i describes almost kind of like a democratic oligarchy where in theory all the families are equal but There was more than just five families. Those were a lot of different families part of the commission, but it was the New York families, pretty much everything. So these five families and the head of these five families would run like this democratic oligarchy, I guess, where they'd all have votes on, you know, important matters, wars and... Um, you know, who's going to get whacked and not get whacked. And, you know, are we going to get involved in drugs or not get involved in drugs and stuff of that nature?
1: Well, Maranzano was from Italy. And like you said, he maybe didn't even speak English. And he comes in and he has uh, these highfalutin ideas that I'm going to recreate this. And it's kind of based on the Roman military. And it's kind of based on how the Catholic Church ran and how a medieval uh a medieval feudal system worked but i'm going to be the the like you said the king of the kings where lucky luciano was a he wasn't born in the us but i think he came here when he was very young he understood what the street was all about in new york city and how these gangs actually and practically worked together
2: Oh yeah, for sure. And like, yeah, Lucky was, I don't believe he was born in the States. He was born in uh, Sicily, but he was American, right? Like even later on in his life, and he gets deported to Sicily. And there's a story about, I think he was talking to some some American actor, and name escapes me right now, where he just wanted to talk to him because he's like, he missed hearing a New York accent, right? And I mean, that's one of the sadder, like, we'll, we'll probably end up doing a series on Lucky, but... Yeah, Lucky was an American through and through or Maranzano or like America was kind of like a foreign country to him.
1: Now, Lucky steps up and he forms really what at this point we might call the American Mafia 2.0 after all of this kind of pr- from the primordial stew of Italian uh, slash American criminal criminality. Lucky Luciano really forms what we know of as the mafia. How does he do that?
2: Yeah, so through like setting up the the commission, right? And they had a big meeting in Chicago, and there was an agreement that, uh, like I pointed out, like things would be democratically elected. There'd be no more boss of bosses because the way Lucky looked at it is. This whole boss of bosses title was what led to all these conflicts to begin with, like the, like the war that we had just previously talked about. But, but even before that, there was the mafia and the Camorra war. And the way Lucky kind of looked at it was like, none of this stuff is good for business, really. And none of this stuff is good for us because like there's people dying on the streets and there's wars going on. No one's making money. The police are, the police start getting involved and you know, it's, The best way to run this thing is like to as quietly as we possibly can under, you know, underneath the surface where nobody really notices and the cops don't like the police organizations don't feel like they have to. They're being forced to do something about it. A lot of the times they didn't really, you know, like your local police officer at the time when they were were still walking the beat, they'd be happy to accept a bribe and turn a blind eye. But it gets to the point where. You know, people are getting shot in the middle of the street and it's like, you know, there's pushback enough from the public where it's like you guys have to do something about this and then they have no choice in the matter. They have to.
1: And it's kind of a mix of the the criminality. They have this low end things like running numbers games and slot machines that are in every little corner store. They're also into drugs and unions, and they have a a lot of, um in the Mafia parlance, they're wetting their beak in a lot of little games and a lot of big games. And we can kind of see that different of the families had either they were more involved in the small time stuff or like Lucky and his version and gang, they're kind of in the bigger game, bigger money stuff
2: yeah yeah for sure like each kind of family uh like the Bonanos was always they were always big time drug dealers right and the the is like i've always kind of thought of them as like the they're like the ivy league mafia like they're like the top of the top right it's like them and the gambinos are like the head honchos um especially to the genovese but we'll talk about that when we get a little later in the episode in my opinion um yeah, it, pretty quickly the commission, the whole commission system is put to the test. Where duck uh, there was a gentleman named Dutch Dutch Schultz, and he was he was a big time gangster in the area, and they were running into trouble with the with a gentleman named Thomas Dewey. I mean, if you're a little familiar with history, you know who Thomas Dewey is, right? He, you know, he ran for president, um, didn't win, right? But he ran. He was, you know, he's a big time American politician, right? But he, uh. He saw an opportunity – it depends on the way you look at it. I think he was legitimately upset about organized crime in um, in New York in general. Yeah, so he saw an oper- – Thomas Dewey saw an opportunity to go after Lucky Luciano and organized crime in general. And, uh, you know, he was one of these, like, crusader types where they weren't going to build – bribe this guy off right that's one thing i'll give thomas dewey right like he probably could have taken bribe money and you know i'm sure he was threatened and all you know all the typical stuff that the mafia d- does to people to uh you know get them to stop doing stuff so- something they don't want them to do and thomas dewey never did it, it never fell into that trap so Dutch Schultz came up with this idea. was like, well, we're just going to kill him. <laughs> the commission was like, look, he's like, whoa, well, wait, wait, wait. We're like, we're not killing this guy. Like, are you nuts? You know how much heat that's going to cost? And uh so the commission had their like their first sit down where. All the heads of the families talked about, like, well, what are we going to do with this Dutch guy? Because he seems dead set. He's going to kill Thomas too. And he's like, you know, they sat down and apparently the meeting was six hours and they decided, no, we got to kill Dutch because it's just he's not listening. He's flying off the handle. He's not following the rules. And that's what they ended up doing.
1: Dutch is one of the great hotheads. There's so many hotheads in mafia history and Dutch Schultz is one of the great ones. And I believe he was another Jewish gangster as well. I'm, not, I think he
2: was German. I had, I'll have to double check on that.
1: That could be a series in and of itself of the, and we've been talking a lot about this of what made the American mafia what it was. And it's a lot of it is the interface of all these different ethnicities that were paid, basically living right on top of each other and the tenements and the neighborhoods of New York. We get into. A, uh charlie lucky's luck is about to run out what happens to charlie charlie lucky and who replaces him
2: thomas dewey he goes after uh lucky luciano he gets him up on uh, r- uh compulsory uh what did they call it it was compulsory uh prostitution basically i they Basically, charged them with human trafficking. Uh, but the case is if you will get into it, but a little bit, just to give a quick overview, like it's a little kind of flimsy. Where you know, some of the girls talked about like being basically like sex slaves, and then but then later they ended up recanting it. Uh, the whole case is a little kind of wishy washy, but at the end of the day, you know, lucky got charged, he ends up he goes to jail. Um, which is funny because like. Lucky was probably one of the guys that they should really make a movie about this. We're lucky between Lucky and Tommy Thomas Dewey and like the back and forth between the two of them. Because, I mean, a lot of ways Lucky saved Thomas's life. He could have just said, Dutch, you know, have at it. This guy's having me a lot of trouble that Tommy's the one that ends up putting him in jail. I wonder if Tom, I wonder if Dewey knew that in his lifetime that like Lucky pretty much saved his life. It'd be. It'd be fascinating. I'm sure I could find it somewhere. I don't know off the top of my head, but it's fascinating
1: to think about. Steve here. We are a member of the Parthenon Podcast Network featuring great shows like Richard Limbs, This American President and other great shows. Go to ParthenonPodcast.com to learn more and here is a quick word from our sponsors. Everything I've ever seen of Thomas Dewey is that he was such a square shooter. I don't think he would have cared that he would have put somebody (laughs) in jail. I just don't think he played that game. But and so this is all happening in the 1930s at this point, right? Yeah. And so how do we lead into once uh, Lucky, he's fairly much out of the picture in the day to day operation who takes over after him?
2: Lucky's in jail at the time, and he's kind of running the family out of prison. But he leaves the, I guess, the day to day operations, the acting position, to a gentleman named Vito Genovese. You know, we had talked about earlier a lot of these. They grew up together, right? Like Lucky and Vito, they'd known each other for a good chunk of their lives. Um, and I think it was like it was down to Vito and Frank Costello, and Lucky went with Vito. I guess maybe we'll get into the differences between Vito and Frank Costello a bit, and then we'll discuss them just quickly. There's apparently a movie coming out uh, about the two of them.
1: Like you were saying, Vito and Lucky Luciano, I think they even called them the Young Turks. They were like the young generation stepping up against the mustache peats of Mazzaria and Maranzano, even though they weren't really that much younger than maranzano i think it was less than 10 years younger but they had a a way different attitude and so maybe uh talk a little bit about Vito and his early time as being the the boss of of this new family or of his new family you might say
2: he gets put in charge and but only like pretty much like pretty quickly he ends up having to flee to italy to be quite honest with you he gets caught up in some murder charges and he just flees um and on and then frank costello ends up becoming the boss but what's interesting during like this whole time period it's like world war ii breaks out right and the federal government ends up going to you know lucky luciano saying like You know, can you like make sure like nothing goes on at the harbors in New York and stuff like that? So we can get like supplies to the troops. And he's like, yeah, no problem. I'm an American. And it ends up coming out later that, um, it was really embarrassing for the government where this agreement, uh, becomes public. And they, I think they had made a deal with Lucky that they were going to let him out of jail early, but, I think they changed that deal and said, look, like, well, here's the deal. You, you can get out of jail, but we're going to you're going back to Sicily and then you have to stay there. And that's basically what happened. And Lucky goes to Sicily and Frank Costello uh, takes over the family. And uh, Frank's an interesting guy where if you could think of the guy that's like, it's like, yeah, he's a he's a gangster, right? but he's not really a This, the stuff that you typically associate with a gangster, like Frank Costello is not that guy. Like, he's not prone to violence. He's not quick tempered. He's very much like a businessman. And like, when people talk about like how the mafia is just like, oh, they're just like businessmen and they just doing this and, you know, they just do this and this. And, you know, like sometimes they have to use violence. Like, a lot of the times these people don't know what they're talking about, but, uh, Like Frank Costello is kind of like the meme of what people think of like a mobster. Like, uh, you know, he's like a businessman. He doesn't do he doesn't do anything really wrong. It's like he just doesn't want to pay taxes to the government type thing. But he like set up this huge empire of slot machines in New York, like bringing in tons and tons and tons and tons of money. I think I read somewhere he had like 25,000 slot machines in New York at one point. And like at one point, the mayor... Basically took like thousands of these slot machines and threw them in the middle of the ocean or some, somewhere. And like he was having a hard time with it. And like and then apparently like Huey Long at one point goes to Frank Costello and be like, you know what? I don't care about your gambling. Uh, here's the deal: like you can open up as many gambling joints and slot machines in Louisiana as you want, as long as the state, as long as we get a ten percent cut of it. We don't care, right? And you know, like uh, that's where Frank made most of his money was in elite like. Gambling, really, which it's crazy for people to think of it now, but at the time, yeah, it was it was illegal.
1: <laughs> yeah, lotteries illegal, slot machines illegal. Uh, I don't in Louisiana to this day. There's pretty much slot machine parlors and every single rest stop if you drive through there. And on that, that's how it goes in a lot of other places too. When they, you know, they basically legalized these number rackets that. The mafia was just making money hands over fists and they just legalized it and moved on from there. But it's was such huge money. It was more than like you said, it was the I don't know if white collar is quite the right word, but it was the not breaking somebody's fingers over owing twenty five dollars and being late. On a, uh, on a 25 cent VIG payment. This is huge money. And we have Costello's running the joint. He's running the family. Lucky Luciano's kind of floating around on the peripheries. Uh, it's, there's no Zoom in the 40s for him to be able to run the organization from, from a distance. But Vito Genovese is on his way back in. How does he come back into the story of this family, of his family?
2: Yeah, so Vito, yeah, he fled to Italy really, right? Uh, Sicily when, for the murder um, that we'll get into in a little bit, right? Uh, during this entire time, he's just cozying up with Benito Mussolini, you know? Like, they're good pals, and he's helping out, and it's, there's like um, the just a little side bit like there's a there's a belief that like benito mussolini like really took on the mob and kind of destroyed it and in in southern italy and in some ways it is true right uh a lot of i would say there's like two things that kind of formed the american mafia to do prohibition would be one because it just it filled it gave them a huge war chest really and I would say like the the fascist crackdown on uh, mafia uh, mafia activity in Sicily and in southern Italy because a lot of these guys then just fled and went to New York right, which just filled up their ranks more. Uh, I'd say like those were two big things that happened. But you know, Vito didn't have a didn't have a problem working with this guy. Um, and, and I know there's this belief that like Benito Mussolini was like super anti mafia. I mean. I don't know. It depends. Like if you're like Vito and you're willing to work. Sure. Like, well, why not? You know, I'm willing to work with you too. Right. So yeah, he's working with Mussolini, but like, as soon as the war turns, um, you know, Vito being the swell guy that he is, it's like, Oh no, no, I'm going to go work for the allies now. And he was helping the allies with like supply, you know, local supply issues in terms of like troops getting food and, what have you, and he was skimming off the top obviously throughout this entire time and doing like illegal activities. And I even at, like, and uh, sorry, there was like an army officer in Italy and he was um trying to tell like the the uh, US military like what Vito was doing, and they're like, we don't want to hear it, just just leave it be. But Vito finds himself in trouble a little bit, like back home, where, um, one of the, uh, somebody, uh, ended up turning like state witness or whatever. And he says that Vito was involved in Bochia's murder and, um, basically is being, you know, forced to go back to the United States to stand trial for, uh, this murder. And something interesting happens though. Like anybody that can collaborate the evidence that were willing to testify in court just ends up dead. So the charges ended up getting dropped and the judge actually had a famous, pretty funny thing to say to him. He's like, and I cannot speak for the jury, but I believe that if there was even a shred of corroborating evidence. you would have been condemned to the electric chair. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he gets off on all the charges and now he's back in the United States and the way he looks at it, you know, I had to flee because I was on murder charges. I, you know, I was the head of the family. This is my gig. And he actually hires a, a young hitman by the name of uh Vincent Giganti, young up and coming mobster. Uh we're gonna get into him in a little bit. Uh hires him, but you know, Vincent screws it up. He he shoots him in the head, but he just grazes them, so he doesn't actually kill uh Frank Costello. And Frank Costello just looks at this and he's just like, you know what, man, like I've I've made my money. I'm
1: out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: I'm out. Like, I don't, I don't want any part of this. Like, Vito's in. Vito's a nutcase, right? Even right from the like early on, they, they, the new Vito was nuts, right? That's kind of why they liked having him around because, and that, you know, in the mafia lifestyle, it's good to have somebody who's a little off the rocker when you need them, right? Uh Frank's like, I'm out, and he just steps aside, you know, which is I can't think of any other example of that happening in the American mafia, you know, even, you know, he. Even went to court and they were prying him of like, well, who shot you? Who do you think shot you? And then, you know, Frank just didn't talk, which is crazy when you can compare it to, like, say, the Colombo family or the Bonanno family where they found themselves in situations like this. This would have broke out into full on civil wars within the families where the, the, the Genovese family, this is handled about as smoothly as you can possibly imagine you know it probably would have been better if frank had just stayed in power and Vito was just out of the picture but you know this is what happened frank stepped aside and you know probably like i said he was just done with it and he probably saw like well this could potentially learn lead to a civil war and this is just not good for anybody in the family it's not good for the mafia so it's just you know let Vito run it for a bit
1: and man, oh man, with uh, what Vito and the American Mafia and the Italian Mafia got involved in in post-World War II Europe with the Vatican, the Vatican Bank, the OSS that would become the CIA, like you think we're starting to uh put on our tinfoil fedoras right now, but this is stuff that's been proven as a fact, and we will probably more than just do a series on this. We'll probably do an entire season on all of that stuff, and that the the American Mafia linked to all of these really—you could almost say—weird anti-communist things going on. But just the the great game that unfolded after World World War II—that Mafia money was central to—is an absolutely fascinating thing. But just to put a pin in that for a moment, what was uh? the, the success or lack thereof of uh, don Vito after he takes firm control
2: one of the first things that he does like when he takes over is he is, is insistent that there would be a big uh mafia summit to kind of legitimize his new uh the fact that he's the new head of the uh what is now called the genovese family at this point um it was called uh, the luciano family uh previously but uh I don't know, Vito. I don't know. I did that. I wonder if they have like a vote on that. It's like, we're just going to change the name or so. You just, yeah, I I have not figured that out yet. Where like, sometimes they keep the name and then other times they just change it. Oh, I was just thinking about it right now.
1: And I think we'll get into that with the Gambino family too. Uh, that the families just kind of morph into a new name. And I don't know if that's maybe just what they're called by the outside. The um, And then that just kind of caught
2: Because there was the the Bonanno family, it was, like, they were still called the Bonanno family, but apparently when Joe Massino took over, I don't know, they were calling it the Massino family because they were so ashamed of Joe Bonanno and his book. But, I mean, it's still referred to as the Bonanno family. It's just weird, like, seems like kind of like this early-ish period The names would change, and they haven't changed since, so anyways he gets um, us
1: into this we've been talking about the appalachian meeting and dropping hints about it but veto is absolutely central to this meeting
2: yeah he called well he's the one who he's the one that spearheaded this meeting he wanted to like legitimize his rule and you know i'm the i'm the boss and at this time it was kind of unofficial but like the genovese family was the most powerful Family And who was ever in charge of the Genovese family is kind of like the boss of bosses, really, and sort of, right? Uh, That wasn't a real title, but but they were the most powerful. Uh, He holds this meeting, and it's a complete and utter disaster. You know, it gets raided. A lot of mob uh, bosses end up going to jail for, you know, not long stretches, but like three to five years, some of them, some, some of them longer. Other ones are just being, uh, like, were just harassed from this point on. And, um, but the big thing that came out of that meeting was there was really no denying that there was like a centrally organized crime syndicate that was predominantly ran by, uh, Sicilians and Southern Italians in the United States where, the uh, FBI like at the f b i and jagger Hoover were very uh kind of hands off they they didn't really wanna admit this was the case I'm sure they knew, but they were kind of they were focused more on other things like in terms of like internal subversion with communists and stuff of that nature and like more kind of cold war stuff but at the, this point there's just you can't just deny it anymore. You can't pretend like it's not real. Like you have a meeting where all these people are meeting up at one place to discuss, uh, <laughs> discuss like criminality and how to organize it in the United States. There's just, there was just no denying it anymore, right? And it was very in your face and very public.
1: What happens to Vito as we move on after the Appalachian? He made a lot of enemies at this. Uh, after this debacle, what happens to him in the aftermath of Appalachian?
2: Yeah, so there's like a combination of two things. Like the, uh, the Appalachian meeting was, I think it gave like in a, a convenient... I don't want to say excuse, but it gave like the convenient reason for like the other families. They kind of wanted to knock down the Genovese family a couple of pegs because I had previously mentioned, uh, met, mentioned that they were the one, the most powerful. They were the most powerful family, so they saw this as an opportunity to kind of knock them down a little bit. Um, a lot of people just didn't like Vito. It wasn't a very likable person. He <laughs> wasn't wasn't it remarkably intelligent either um from what i read that apparently there was like a drug busting scheme basically set up by like lucky luciano who you know he was still involved distant distantly but they would still talk to lucky right you know he set the whole thing up um carlo gambino frank costello was You know, other mobs, guys would still turn to Frank and ask for advice and, you know, what to do in certain situations, right? Uh, And Tommy Lucchese, like, set up this entrapment scheme where Vito was caught dealing drugs and he was sentenced to 15 years in prison, which is, it had to have been entrapment. They, like, they had to have, something had to have been set up because I can't see. A boss of a mafia family like dealing drugs himself can you like from everything i've read in the mo- like they're just not involved in that end of it
1: and i mean that's the whole thing is to insulate them from the street level so they must have in some way set him up
2: he goes to jail and but at the same time another gentleman goes to jail roughly around the same time uh, joe Valachi, and um yeah, Joe Veloci was like a soldier in the Genovese family for, you know, quite some time, right? Uh, I think it was yeah for a good chunk of his life, really. Uh, while Joe's in prison, though, he becomes, like, convinced that Vito is trying to kill him. And even at one point, it's hard to say, accidentally killed somebody that he thought was a hitman from the Vito from uh, that was sent by Vito. But he uh, he bludgeoned uh, a prisoner to death, thinking that he was a hitman turned out not to be fearing for his life and probably wanting to get realizing he's never going to get out of prison for the rest of his life. So maybe trying to get, you know, a little bit of deal, or maybe he just legitimately felt bad about the life that he led, uh, turned state witness and decides that he's going to talk about the inner workings of the, of the mafia. He was the first guy to really break with Omerta in any significant fashion.
1: Yeah, it's so, it's so funny that we talk about people who, bro uh later on much much later who break the code of silence but it was pretty early on in the in the rise of the mafia where people broke the the code and there's always been you know what you might call stool pigeons along the way who dropped stuff but nothing like joe velacci did and we will get into a whole different thing with uh with Joe Velocci and a very soon let's wrap up today as we kind of cruise into the ending here of at least our overview of the Genovese family. What happens after the demise of Genovese? He just pretty much just died in prison. And then what happens? And after his fall,
2: Vito dies in jail. He was like, he was kind of running it from jail for a bit, right? It's is remarkable. That he wasn't, he wasn't actually, so much happened when he, he was in charge, but he was only in charge for like a little bit. None of it was good. So <laughs> you know what I mean. The Genevieve's family is like try to they come up with this like the system where I guess in a sense they ensure that something like veto, uh Don Vito doesn't happen again. Really, or they they set up like kind of like a ruling panel at first, and then they 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 take it a little step. They take it a step further, or a gentleman by. Philip Lombardo is actually named the boss, but they, they set up the system where they will have the actual boss and then they have the front boss. So the front boss is the one that the cops and the FBI and the wiretaps are supposed to think are think is actually running the thing. Well, there's the real boss is behind all of this. And this is kind of unique to the Genovese family because no other family really set up a system like this. It's, it's crazy to think though. I think a lot of them, I think nowadays kind of have a system set up like this. Like, I don't think we know who's actually in charge of the Colombo family now. And it's been like that for like a really long. We know the Colombo family's there. We just have no idea who's in charge of it. Um, so I think they kind of took a cue from the Genovese family, but, uh, it is actually a really kind of brilliant system. If you think about it, because it's like kind of like a double deception. And on top of it, like other than like Joe Veloci, the Genovese family is pretty famous for pretty like not many people really have broken Amerita, Not a lot of people have turned state witness. So it's like this layer on top of layer of secrecy where it just becomes more and more difficult for the authorities to really get to the, the beating heart of the uh, of the syndicate.
1: Steve here again with a quick word from our sponsors. After all of this, it's a one thing leads to another leads to another, and we introduce uh, one of our favorites, Vincent the Chin Gigante, which was all, he was often called the Odd Father, and uh, he's another one. We're just going to cru- cruise over him, but uh, you wait, we're going to do a whole thing on this guy too. Talk a little bit, of, just set up the chin a little bit for us.
2: Like, like you pointed out, like the Vince of the Shin Gigante is probably one of the most intriguing mafia figures of all time. Um, he becomes like the actual boss and then he, his front boss is, uh, Anthony Fat Tony Salerno, which is, we're, we'll probably end up doing a whole series on him too, right? Uh, he, just the amount of money that Salerno made was just insane. Insane. Uh, <laughs> and, uh. Yeah, so Vince, Vince of the Chin Gigante, he'd been around the mob for, like, we had talked about him just earlier in this episode, you know? Like, this dude led in a pretty insane life. Like, how many guys can say, like, they shot a mob boss, failed at doing it, never got charged with anything, and then also nobody tried to kill him. And, like, later on, he ends up becoming the boss of that same family. You know? Like, uh talk about just being Lucky. They should have called him. That That should have been his nickname. It was, like, Lucky. <laughs> So he, like, takes up the secrecy to, like, he, like, ratchets it up to 11, like, the you know, like a Spinal Tap reference, <laughs> but he really did, where, like, they had set up this whole system where they had, like, the front boss, and then they had, like, the actual boss behind the scenes, like, Chin took it a step further, where, like, yeah, he had, like, Salerno, who, who was his front boss, but then he also, he was the actual boss, but he would act insane, and he kept up this act for a really long time, like, like quite literally just walking around town in bathrobes, like exposing himself, like pissing on the side of the streets, um, uh, going to weekly psychiatric meetings where they would have doctors write off that he was like an insane person, uh, taking showers with a suit on. <laughs> so when like if cops came around the house, like he would literally be taking like showers with his suits on. And like even it fooled a lot of people. I mean, because he kept this act up so well he should have been an actor really like even some of the mob guys were like like we know that he's faking it but like he can't be this good like he's got to be a little off his rocker right and i've heard different theories where like he actually did have some mental problems and like so like if when he had to you know really ratchet it up he would just he would plan it out and then like get off his meds for a little bit so like he it was kind of like he was acting it, but it was like being off the meds obviously made it more believable, but it fooled everybody. I mean, even at the Mafia Commission trial, like they that on uh, uh, Fat Tony Salerno, like he ends up getting involved in all of this and he ends up going to jail for the rest of his life. Um you know, in just an example of just how powerful, like the, the code of emerita was in the Genovese family. Like Tony Salerno could have been like, I, you guys are going after the bosses. Like, I'm not the boss. Like, you got this all wrong. Like, I'm just pretending to be the boss. I can give you who the actual boss is, but he never ends up talking. The, the prosecutors and like the, a lot of the people in the FBI and the local law enforcement were, were fooled. They, they honestly thought Chin was just just an insane person but in reality he was running probably the most powerful crime family in new york
1: it reminds me of a book in a movie called the prestige and the whole thing of that book in the movie was that these magicians basically completely changed their lives just for the benefit of their magic show like their magic tricks relied on them living their entire life's lives, lives completely abnormally and not to how they really were. It was two twins. I mean, we could get into all of that, but the chin is an absolute 100% real life example of somebody who always played their role so that You always, I think he played it so much that he probably actually did turn into it. I mean, I don't see how you couldn't or the, um, there, there's so many examples of that sort of thing where to. In order for people to believe you have to you cannot take the mask off for an instant. And he really pulled that off. And for that, I mean, I hate to say it, but I almost have to commend somebody who with that that amount of dedication. For sure.
2: Right. I mean, and even like he would take it up the layers of like um, security too, or like depending on where he was living at the time, like the house was never left alone. And the, the person's job was to make sure, like, it wasn't getting bugged and, like, you know, if you were speaking to him, you either had to point to your chin or you had to, like, do a circle with a C in it, you know, just in regular conversation, like, you know, stuff that you would think about, like, you know, this is kind of stuff that, like, teenagers would come up with to be, like, secret, but it, yeah. it makes sense. Like, it really does make, it would work. um It just seems like something like a blue collar criminal type would come up with and be like oh just don't see my name just spell it out in the air with a c or something. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what i mean like and i'm just gonna i'm gonna pretend to be crazy this entire time it was effective man it really did it really did work and that's why to this day like the genovese family is probably the most powerful family in new york right now but you know that's getting a little ahead of ourselves
1: Eventually, the chin does go down though. Uh, and it's a, it's a really interesting story. And they kind of do the police and the prosecutors do crack his, this facade he puts on of his mental illness. And then Gigant Gigante died and. 2005 kind of what's the rest of the story of you said they're the most powerful family probably at the time or as much as we as we know and and just wrapping up because um we only have a couple more families left to go how would you Compare what's the flavor of the Genovese family as opposed to some of these other families?
2: Instead of all the five families, the Genovese family really can't put it in any other way, they just got it right, like they just got it. (laughs) You know, like if how to run a criminal syndicate, really, uh, like the the secrecy that they use, like uh, the adhering to Emerita. Uh, making tons and tons of money, right? That's the thing with the We didn't really get into that as much this episode, but we will in later episodes. Just the Genovese family just made so much money. Like they were involved in this window installing scheme, which is actually kind of what brought Vincent the Gigante down. At one point, they were installing almost 80% of the windows that went in any public housing that went in, That was built in New York. Eighty percent, I think they were bringing. I think that that scheme alone brought in like four hundred million dollars or something. They estimate in terms of just like you know doing the racketeering thing, you know, or you know, it's like kickbacks here and kickbacks there. And like I think I saw something like the the amount of money that it cost to install a window in the United and. New York in comparison to other cities was like astronomically like by like a factor of a hundred more <laughs> cost more or something like that. They also didn't like like the the Genovese family also didn't let internal family squabbles break out into like large civil wars. It just didn't happen. Like if you look at how the Frank Costello and Vito situation, which really easily could have take could have destroyed the family, really. Just didn't happen where if, and if you compare that to like the other families, it's just simply not the case like if you look at the it just they just didn't have like a lot of the like the pitfalls that the other families do. like if you look at say the Gambino family like especially when John Gotti comes comes along, it's the flash and the openness is pretty ends up ends up destroying that family really we we'll, we're gonna end up doing a series on Gotti, right, but I don't think there's any denying it in a lot of ways he. He kind of single-handedly destroyed that family uh, because of how open he was. And, you know, it's interesting to contrast. Maybe maybe we can do an episode on that, too, where we contrast John Gotti and Vincent Giganti because in a lot of ways, they're like polar opposites from each other. Where John Gotti was wearing fancy suits, he was out in the public talking to reporters, and Vincent was, you know, pissing in a corner in a bathrobe acting crazy. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Do you yeah. I
2: mean? like it's it's a totally different kind of approach to criminality or john's like i know i'm going to jail i'm just going to enjoy my time while i have and where vincent was like i'm going to try, i don't know try not to go to jail and i mean i don't think there's any arguing that vince's a vince vince giganti's approach was much better in terms of the longevity of of his family where i mean there is something to say with gaudy it's like well you know like you're gonna to go to jail you might as well have fun
1: before you you do. I think you see with somebody like uh with the Genovese family and the chin w- uh, gigante with the things that they were doing, they were almost they were in that gray area of. Yeah, you're you're installing Windows in public housing developments, and it was almost like they were the city and the contractors were just putting that money out to steal. It's like putting a uh, bag of Skittles in front of your kid and said, "Don't eat the Skittles." <laughs> it, it's against yeah. the rules, but that you still left a big bowl of Skittles in front of them, and you you left the room, and I think with the with that. That huge money and contracting and contracts, It, it was all about being in that gray zone of legal and illegal. And that's why they made so much more money. And I, you contrast that to the Bonanno family where I, you know, I like to go back to the example of them breaking open parking meters for quarters. Like that's the spectrum you have there of criminality. You have people, uh, like Chin Gigante in the gray zone of, uh, multi-million dollar contracts that are illegal, but kind of not illegal. And all, uh, all the way to just the most low-level crime you could possibly imagine.
2: You look at the Columbo family, right? Like we did an episode on them, right? And it was just constant civil war, really. Like anything, like to fight, yeah, we're gonna have a war over it. it um. Wrote its entire history and then if you the lucchese family is the only family that comes close to what the genovese family was uh i would say to a small like they never i don't think they ever brought in the type of revenue that the genovese family did but in terms of just running smoothly up until Vicamuzo and gas pipe completely ruined it. That's probably the closest comparison. And like you had mentioned the Bonanno family, right? Like the constant turnover and the leadership of the Bonanno family. And then, you know, they also let an FBI agent like into the inner sanctum of the family, which is not good. I just gotta say, like the Genovese family in terms of the five families, they're you know, they're the Ivy League, they're the Harvard, uh they're the Harvard class out of all the uh, uh, mafia families in North America.
1: Well, thanks again for joining us. We're cruising through these five families. We're just getting us set up to really do deep dives into all of these subjects. So if there's something that you want to hear more about, definitely reach out to us by email, social media. You can find links to all of that in the show notes and, just go and tell a friend so that they can become a friend of ours. And we'll talk to you next time.
2: Yeah. See you guys. I hope you're enjoying these episodes and uh, forget about it.
0: You've been listening to organized crime and punishment, a history and crime podcast
2: to learn more about what you heard today, find links to social media and how to support the show. Go to our website, a to com. Become a friend of ours by sending us an email to crime at a to zhistorypage.com. All of this and more can be found in the show notes.
0: We'll see you next time on organized crime and punishment. Forget about it. Text the word HISTORY using the code 30605 and we'll send you a link to a wonderful product that can help you finally succeed in shedding that extra weight. Jeff in Indiana lost 55 pounds with Calitrin. Lily in Tennessee shed 42 pounds. Beth is sleeping much better and her joint aches have eased up considerably. Text the word HISTORY. To the code 30605 right now to see this week's special offer on Calitrin. Calitrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age. Taking Calitrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calitrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90 day supply.